The following audio is from Sacred City Church. For more information, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met with him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanam. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the county of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to the Lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are four hundred men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him, and the flocks, and the herds, and camels, into two camps, thinking, If Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, I, Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do your good. I am not worthy of the least of all these deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, and he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, Every drove by itself and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, To whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau, and moreover he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him, and you shall say, Moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us, for he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jacob. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw what he had done, excuse me, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. 
But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, you shall, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew or the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Imagine with me for a moment what could be. Imagine a world where men lead in their marriages, where men lead in raising their children, where men lead in protecting those who are weak and oppressed. It is the most important journey you could possibly be on. This world needs more than a bold movement of men to step up and be men. When you look across all lives, we can see that there's a deficit there. And there's a great need for men to rise up and be the men they've been called to be. We're just not going to pull that out of the air. We're going to look at our model and the 33 years that Jesus lived on this earth. Men who don't transition well into middle adulthood... They usually fall to the major danger. You find yourself in between a rock and a hard place. If you let this happen, you'll find yourself in manhood hell. There's a lot that you can give a son, but the greatest gift you can give him is the example of integrity and a great name. That's a legacy. talking complex ethics here. I don't touch that tree. That, that's not hard. You see, manhood is imprinted. If you get the young men, you win the war. The families, the women, the children, the money, the business, you get everything. Imagine a world where men dominate areas of eternal significance. Good morning. Happy Mother's Day. And... We're talking about men, right? There's nothing better than a good Mother's Day. Uh, the best Mother's Day present a mom can get is a good man. Amen? Amen? All right? So one of the things that we want to do at Sacred City is we, God's called us to raise up men. God's called us to train men to be men. Men that can be men and still wear bow ties. That's right. All right? We want men that are strong. They can lead their families. They can love their wives. They can lead businesses. They can lead in the city. That as the, men, as, as the man goes in the home, so goes the home. As the man goes in the city, so goes the city. As the man goes in the neighborhood, so goes the neighborhood. And we have a manhood crisis in our culture. We have a fatherhood epidemic. We have men who never had fathers. They don't know how to be fathers. We have men who never watched a husband love his wife well. So we don't know how to be husbands. We have young men who know every trick in the book when it comes to Xbox. And they don't know how to talk to a woman like this. Not like this, right? 
We need to raise up men. And listen, we yell at men a lot around here. We tell men to step up and lead. Well, this is an opportunity for us to, to actually do it, to, to be practical, to help walk men through how to lead their wives, how to study the Bible, how to balance a checkbook, how to do these different things, how to really be a man. And what we're doing is June 6th, we're starting this manhood series. We're going to meet at our offices, 1411 Brady Street at 6 a.m. Nobody's doing anything else at 6 a.m. Sleeping, possibly, right? But not this day. So we're waking up early. We're going to meet at 6 a.m. And we're going to watch. There's, there are the videos about 20 minutes long. And then we break up and we discuss it. And I'm going to ask every man, wives, elbow your husband. Wives, put it on his calendar. Wives, do what you got to do. All right? Get your husband there. Young men, be there. Young men, it's $15. You're going to get a book, booklet to go with it or a workbook to go with it. We're encouraging you. June 6th, it's going to be a six-week study. Six weeks. Um, be there June 6th. We want, to, we want to help you. We want to help you. We want to help train you. We want to help motivate you. We want to help move you in the direction that God's called you to go. Cool? All right. So you can find out, find out about that on the city. If you go out of here... Um, the city, we have a, a welcome area, the box office area. You can sign up for the city right there. We need you to RSVP because we got to order the books ASAP. Okay. So men, can you say RSVP? Okay. We need it because we've got to buy your books. All right. So please go ahead and do that. Um, again, I want to welcome you this morning. Happy mother's day. Uh, welcome to sacred city church. We, we are thrilled to have you join us today. Um, we are actually just extremely grateful and thankful to all the moms in the house. Um, but ultimately, we're here to celebrate Jesus. All right. Moms, if you didn't see, we've got a professional photography thing set up out there. It says, Happy Mother's Day. You can get your picture taken. It's going to be free. We're going to post all the pictures uh, available on the city for you to download and do what you want to do with them. So make sure you get all your family together and uh, snap a pic before we, before we walk out of here today. Uh, but that means for, for us today is that we're going through the book of Genesis and we're in chapter 32. So that's where we're going to be today. Chapter 32. No uh, cheesy Mother's Day music or handing out carnations to all the moms. Um, I was at a church one time and they literally sang boys to men song Mama on Mother's Day. Okay? It was awful. I'm just going to tell you. It was awful. All right. Great song, but that is awful. No gimmicks this morning. Moms, we love you, but uh, you pay me to preach the Bible and talk about Jesus, so that's what I'm going to do today. Is that cool? Yep. All right. Awesome. So, and I, you know what? And I know it is. I know that's what you pay me for. I know that's what you want me to do, and I'm excited to do it this morning, and I just want to take a second to thank you. Uh, I want you to know from the bottom of my heart how much I love you, how much I love this church, how, much, um, how great of a privilege that I feel it is. That I think, I think God is incredibly pleased with us in Christ here at Sacred City Church. I'm, I'm so blessed to get to stand up here week in and week out um, and preach the Bible and yell at you and just tell you how awesome Jesus is. That it's a great joy in my heart. That it's an opportunity to be able to preach to people that are hungry is one of the greatest joys. To be able to preach to people that want to say, show me Jesus. Tell me more about the Bible. Tell me more what it means to be a man or a woman of God. Tell me more about this God of the Bible. It's a thrill, man. It's an absolute thrill. So I, I absolutely love my job. I get to preach and yell and scream and shout and do all the things. And then I get to watch God's word go out and I get to watch it change people. And there's, there's nothing better than that. So I hope you came hungry this morning. I hope you are here uh, and I hope God has filled you with faith this morning to believe that God still changes people. 
This isn't just a religious gathering that's nice and neat and we came to hear how to be better people. That God, the God of the Bible, the God in heaven, still literally changes people on the spot. He can take their whole life, their whole past, their whole history, and he can end it this moment and he can give them a new future from now on. That's why we're here this morning. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open it up or your app or your smartphone. You can, we have a Sacred City app. If you go to your app store, you can download that. You can download the YouVersion Bible. Go to Genesis chapter 32. Not going to pull any punches this morning. We're going to preach through the whole chapter of, the ver- of chapter 32 in the book of Genesis. Um, this is one of my favorite chapters, if not my favorite chapter in all of Scripture. Um, and I can't, I, honestly, I can't wait to preach it. So let's just, let's just dig in. Can we do this? All right, let me pray. Father, we thank you for gathering us from all across the cities this morning. We thank you for putting us here under your word. We thank you that you are here tangibly present with us this morning in your word, in the liturgy, in the preaching, in the worship, that you are here. And Father, we ask that you would speak to us, that you would change us, that you would confront us, that you would move us, you would heal us, you would wound us, you would ruin us for anything less than an intimate, vital, real encounter with you today. I pray that you would do this for your glory. I pray that you would think through my mind and you'd speak through my vocal cords. I pray that you'd be glorified, that we would get a big view of Jesus, that we would be awe in the God of the Bible, and that we would also be overwhelmed at the love with which you love us. I pray that you would do this for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. A.W. Tozer once said, what comes, to, what comes into your mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And if you've grown up in the Midwest, you've probably had a good dose of religion growing up. And oftentimes that creates this image of God in our minds that depicts God as a distant, angry deity that is far removed from the messiness of your real life. Or, depending on the type of church you grew up in, Jesus, or God, is, he could also be the other extreme. He could be this soft, sappy, sentimental, hallmark, white, blue eyes, long mullet flowing hair, Jesus. Right? It's just, he's really sweet. And he's, he, for some reason, when Jesus posed for pictures, he had like really awkward poses, like the sacred heart. And he had a little halo around his head. Right? Really feminine, really strange looking, really weird glow. Right? Like he lived under the power lines as a kid or something. Like we get these two opposing views of Jesus. Right? This, or these two opposing views of God. He's really distant and mean and angry. He, he demands a lot of us that we have to please him all the time. And he's sm- constantly smacking us on the wrist. Or we get this, you know, version of Jesus that's just the absolute opposite. And he just gushes over us no matter what we do. Right? He's like that first mom. that The, ba- the baby poops her diaper. Oh! <laughs> he pooped! Right? Like thrilled over just nothing. Right? And I, I think... We need to be balanced. We need to see that the, the, the God of the Bible is actually different from those two views that we get through religion, that we get through growing up in the Midwest. And God actually opposes both of those and he kind of contrasts both of those and he challenges us with both of those views. Our Midwestern upbringing makes us think that God loves hardworking people. 
who clean themselves up, who live good, moral, and responsible lives. In fact, in the Midwest, most people, they don't even know the difference between a good, upright, moral person and a Christian. Many of you in this room right now are going, I didn't think there was a difference. There's a huge difference. And what we've been discovering through the book of Genesis is that as we read God's word and we get to see all these patriarchs, the guys that were the foundation of our faith, the, the guys that God chose to birth the nation of Israel and, and birth you know, the Hebrew people and the, the nation that Jesus would come through, and that these people that God chose, that they're awful. That they have horrible pasts. That their lives were full of wickedness and full of disobedience. That they were immoral. That they were deceivers. That they were full of their own pride. But God would choose them to love and to work in their life for his own glory. And what this shows us right away is that Christianity is opposed to moralism. Moralism says if you do the right things and you be a good person and you obey the rules and you, and you do this and this and this, then God will accept you and you'll make it into heaven. And Christianity is, is the exact opposite. Christianity is that God would come down in the person of Jesus Christ as God's son and live the perfect life because we all fail day in and day out. And that somehow, through dying on the cross, this God-man could give us his perfect life as he would take in himself our deceitfulness, our sin. And as Martin Luther would say, the great exchange happens on the cross. Jesus takes our sin and we get his perfect standing. And this is all by sheer grace. Now, be honest, doesn't that bother your hardworking Midwestern values just a little bit? That bug you, right? I mean, we're we're the land of Alcoa, we're the land of John Deere, right? We we we're hardworking farmers. Amer- I mean, that's what we were birthed this area. Even though you're not, pro- most of us in here aren't farmers anymore. But that that that's in our blood. That's in our heritage. That's in the air that we breathe. It should bother us. But what we're going to see today, and this is interesting is that the God who saves these people by sheer grace, the God who reaches down and picks up these messed up sinners that have done nothing to deserve him, this God never leaves these messed up sinners where they are. God never gives them grace. And listen to me, those of us who struggle with falling off the the grace wagon on one side or the other, oh, God loves us, so it doesn't matter how we live. I can just be a fool for the rest of my life. God never gives people grace and then just lets them remain in their foolishness and in the sin that they were in when he found them. But, and I think we get this, we know this, but this is where so many Christians miss the beauty of Christianity. See, many people say, well, I was saved by absolute grace, but now it's up to me to change my life. So we give them 12-step programs, we give them books, we give them all these systems that they, they can try to, to get over their addictions or get over their past or get past their relational problems or, or figure out why they're so stressed. And we, we give them all these things to try to, to, try to medicate the problem. We, we, we say, you're saved by grace, but now you're going to be made perfect through your own self-effort, through your own hard work. Most Christians 
Don't know any other way. Most Christians know they were saved by grace, but the process of being sanctified or the process of being made to look like Jesus, which we're all in, that's the purpose you were saved. The purpose you were saved is so God could have a bunch of little Jesuses across the world that look like him. That in a sense that Jesus is our older brother and he wants to have a lot of siblings that look like him. Because as we image Jesus, the image of God covers the face of the earth. That's the goal, to look like Jesus. And eventually in heaven, God will complete the work in us and we'll be glorified to have sin no longer in us and we'll look like Jesus, we'll be free like Jesus, we'll be able to worship like Jesus. It'll be phenomenal. But this is the difference, see. True Christians are saved by grace, but they're also changed by grace. They're they're changed into new people by that same grace. See, grace never leaves a person unchanged. So if you say, hey, I've received the grace of God, but your, your life is still caught up with the same foolishness as it was before you met Christ, you should check yourself. Maybe you've had a religious experience. Maybe you've surrounded yourself with a new group of people that have this God talk and they talk about the gospel, but maybe that gospel has never really penetrated your heart and never really changed you. See, you cannot meet God personally and walk away from that encounter unchanged. Did you hear me? You can't meet God personally and then walk away from that the same way. Physically impossible. But listen, here's the, here's, the trip, here's, here's, what's, here's the trick. You can attend church and walk away unchanged. You can attend a missional community and walk away unchanged. You can fill your life with a million religious duties and never truly be changed as a person. At the core of your being. See, religion can help you change some of your actions. can help you maybe clean up, maybe sand off some of those rough edges but religion cannot change you as a person. Tim Keller says that religion jury rigs the heart. It, it gets around, it can kind of change a little bit of your outward behavior, but it can't get in the, inside the person and change them at the core. But that's what we're going to talk about this morning. What can change us? What can change us in our heart and not just in our outward obedience? See, God changes people. And I know that, listen, I know that statement right there, there's enough people in this room that you've been around church long enough that you're cynical when I say that. Ah, I don't know. I see people get up and I see them go down. I, see, I don't know if people really change. There's a lot of people in our world that say that. People don't change. People never change. Nobody changes. Listen, you got to read your Bible. See, this is something we might not get in our culture. God changes people. God can reach inside and completely change their dispositioning. And that would, and that changing can then therefore change their future. He doesn't just reach down and kind of pat them and rub them and make people good. I find so many people, especially in the Midwest context, think that religion is, or I mean, that Christianity is all about making people good. It's not about making people good. It's about making people new. Being born again. Jesus doesn't just give people this, or God doesn't just give people this black and white, uh, nice and neat book for them to learn how to change themselves. 
That is not what the Bible is. The Bible is full of stories that show us that God comes down, He meets us where we are, and the God of the Bible actually, listen to this, changes people through wrestling. God changes people through wrestling. So we're going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about the anatomy of a real encounter with God. I bet there are some of us in this room that right now you are in the middle of an encounter with God. That right now you are wrestling with God. You don't even know it. You don't even know what's going on. Maybe you don't even know why you're here this morning. Maybe you don't know why you can't understand the problems in your life. You can't understand how all your past has led you to this moment. You can't understand the frustration and the pain that you're experiencing right now. But what you don't realize is that you are wrestling with God. And I pray that the God of the Bible would open your eyes this morning and you'll realize, oh my goodness, I've been wrestling with God this whole time. I thought it was my brother. I thought it was my parents. I thought it was my coworkers. I thought it was my upbringing. I thought it was all these things. But what in reality, I've been wrestling with God. See, an encounter with God, I think, is so different from what we expect. And I hope today I would give you some clarity. So open up Genesis chapter 32. We're going to jump into it. Let me catch you up real quick for those of us who are visiting with us this morning. Jacob was the son of Isaac, one of the sons of Isaac. His grandfather was Abraham. And a a prophecy was given to Jacob that said, you, the younger brother, uh, you will rule over your older brother. Okay? But Jacob... He's, he's, he's had a difficult life, right? He's been a struggler. He's been a wrestler from in his womb. He was born, he was a tw- one of a twin. He had a twin brother, Esau. In their mother's womb, they were wrestling with each other, all right? Uh, Jacob, from the moment conception happened, he wanted to be first. He wanted to be the best. He wanted to be the winner. Well, Esau was born first, but Jacob, not to be outdone, grasps on to Esau's heel as he's coming out of the womb. He's kind of saying, no, I want to be first. So they wrestled in the womb. They're wrestling on the way out. All right. And this was indicative of Jacob and Esau's whole relationship. They were super competitive with each other. Jacob never felt the love of a father. Isaac loved Esau. But Jacob, of course, got the love of his mama. Right? Mother's Day. Mama loved Jacob very much. Jacob was kind of a mama's boy. But what Jacob did was Jacob um, so craved the love of a father and he so wanted to be the best that he deceived his brother. One day he steals his brother's birthright. Later on in life, he he dresses up like his brother and deceives his father into getting the blessing of the firstborn from his father. And what happens is everything comes crashing down on him. All of his deceitfulness gets him forced out of the house. Esau, the older brother, is rightly angry, right? You took everything that belongs to me. So what does Esau do? I am going to kill you. Forces Jacob to flee. So now Jacob is 40 years old. He's on the run. He's, he's forced out of the home. That his mother's the only person that's ever loved him. And he's forced out. And what happens is Jacob runs into his uncle Laban, who's a crook. He spends 14 years working to earn, the, earn a wife. 
So we, we see right away, Jacob wrestles with his brother. Jacob wrestles with his father. Jacob wrestles with his uncle Laban. And what we see about Jacob is he never loses. He's a deceiver. He's a schemer. He's wicked, but he's a winner. He just keeps on winning. All right. And now what we see, Jacob's got four wives. <laughs> okay. He's got four wives. His wives are wrestling. His whole life is chaotic. And all of a sudden, God, after now it's been 60 years of his life. So it's, he's 60 years old. It's been 20 years. He's been gone from his family for 20 years. And God has been slowly changing him, slowly trying to humble him, slowly trying to pull him into a relationship with himself. And what God does is God shows up to Esau and he does this. I'm sorry, God shows up to Jacob and he says, Jacob, I want you to go home. I want you to go back home. He's been gone for 20 years. Now, what's the problem with that? Right? What's the problem with that? All of Jacob's past, all of those broken relationships, all of that hurt and all of that pain, this today, in this story, all of those roads of his past are going to culminate in one encounter. God says, Jacob, I want you to go back home. And Jacob is thinking about this. This is what Jacob's thinking. The last thing my brother told me, if I see your face again, I'm going to kill you. So that's exactly where Jacob finds himself today. Jacob has lived his life. He's schemed. He's outworked everyone he's ever competed against. But now God is after Jacob's heart. God is trying to change Jacob into a new person once and for all. God has showed up to him. He's told him, go back to the land of your father. But there's one problem. Esau. God has allowed Jacob to run for a season, but now Jacob must confront his past. I find this message so different from what you hear in many of today's churches. Many of today's churches tell us that come to Jesus and he'll give you your best life now. Come to Jesus and things will be peachy keen. Come to Jesus and it'll be tulips and sunshine and rainbows and and you'll have relational peace and people will love you and you'll get this new family where there's no problems. Everything will be great. And what God speaks to Jacob is so different from that. Can I be honest? Is this what you want God to say to you? Hey, hey, remember all that drama in your past? Remember all those broken relationships and all that pain that you've been running from? Remember all those people that hate you? Remember those people that want to kill? Remember that? Go back there. It's like say, see that really dark cloud over there with all the lightning coming down? Oh, what is that? Oh, that looks like a tornado. You see that? You head that way. That direction. That direction? Yeah, that's the direction I want you headed. I feel like, well, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to go there. So he's headed back straight into this situation. And this could very well cost him his life. Esau said, the last time we met, I'm going to kill you. Okay? So all of this mess that he's caused, God tells him to go back there now. Right? It's been a long 20-year process. And Jacob, this is what Jacob says. Okay. Jacob has seen enough of God. He's experienced enough of God to this moment. He's just got a taste of God enough that he said, okay, if God tells me to go, then I'm going to go. Now, this is where things get crazy. 
Jacob's whole life comes down to this moment. All the roads of his past are about to converge into this one encounter. And I'm going to get a little theatrical, okay? Because I have to. Because the story, if I ever write a book, this is probably the chapter I'm going to write a book on. I, I, I want, this, this is just so amazing, okay? Probably because I'm a wrestler, all right? All right I was a wrestler. I wrestled in high school, wrestled, wrestled in college. But this is just Phenomenal. Now, this, this is what's going to happen. Look at verse 32, or chapter 32, verse 1. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. Okay? Now, first off, this is just weird. I want you to set the stage here. He's got to go back into a very difficult situation. His brothers probably want, wants to kill him. God sent him. You've got to go back there. Jacob's got his whole family, 11 sons, one daughter, all of his servants, all of his animals. He gathers them all up. He's headed back towards this tornado, right? Back towards this terrible situation. And the first thing he does as he leaves camp is he walks by and there's some angels just sitting there. Okay. Now, what's so shocking to me is every time you see an angel in the Bible, they have some, they're a messenger. They have something to say fear not, or they, they, they tell people something. These angels, they're just creeping on him. Now, I want you to think, Jacob's, le- I mean, I, I'm thinking, he's leaving camp, and he's like, okay, first thing we see is a group of angels. You know, you're just kind of like, well, you know, like, got something to say? Like, he's met an angel before, and the angel spoke to him. This one's nothing. Just look... Right now, immediately, this is going to put him on edge. Immediately, this is going to stir. I mean, he's already afraid. He's already scared. I'm on. I'm headed back into the toughest wrestling match of my life. I have to confront my brother who I stole things from. I have to confront him in this moment. My life is converging in this. I can't move forward until I deal with this relational chaos with my brother. And then he walks out. This group of angels just chilling over here, you know, right? He's probably thinking a couple things, right? I think number one, can, can, first off, can we set the emotional context? Can you feel that? Can you feel the, the tension that's kind of building in this story? There should be some, uh, some tension here, right? Jacob is already on edge and now he's got angels creeping on him. You can just feel that something big is around the corner. For me, it's like walking into, you know, you, if you ever go to haunted house, Right, and you walk by the guy that's sitting there, and you're just like, okay, this guy's just sitting there, so I know somebody's going to grab me right now. Right? My eye's over here, and somebody's going to get me from behind. Right? You can just feel that these angels, that there's, okay, something big is right around the corner. But I'm also sure that this sight might have also given, gave Jacob some confidence as he remembered God's promise that God said earlier that he would be with him wherever he would go. So Jacob is probably nervous. These angels, they're looking at me weird, but they're not saying anything. So I'm a little creeped out by that, right? But maybe this is God right here. God is with me. He's promised to be with me wherever we go. He's probably thinking, okay, God sent angels. That means two things. It's about to get dicey, but he's got my back, okay? I can handle that. So Jacob's nervous. So this is what Jacob does. Jacob sees the angels. Okay, I'm a little creeped out here. If I need angelic back... angelic help, Esau's probably on his way to kill me. So he gathers some of his people together. He separates them into two camps. So if Esau attacks them, one, the other one can get away. And he does this. He, he basically sends out little convoys. 
he, he takes his people and he kind of breaks them up into three different groups and he gives them all these presents and all these animals and all these sheep and go, oh, first off, he sends them out to go, to go check out Esau. All right? So they run out. And, and this is, look, look at verse uh, four. This is what he said. Instruct the, the men to do this. Thus say to my Lord Esau. Thus says your servant Jacob. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, female. So look, 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 look. What did Jacob do the last time they met? Jacob stole the birthright. So Jacob is the Lord and Esau is meant to be the servant. But Jacob here says, say to my Lord Esau that your servant Jacob, Jacob is humbling himself. Now, this might be because Jacob's got a humble heart before the Lord, or this might be because he's scared to death of big brother Esau. So he sends these people out and he gives them this great greeting and they say, hey, your humble servant Jacob awaits you. And here, take all of these animals and look how Esau responds or look how the servants or the servants come back and say, verse six, the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau. He's coming to meet you. And there's 400 men with him. And Jacob goes, awesome. Esau has an army. So back in the day when my, when my 40 year old brother said he was going to kill me and it was just me against him, that was threatening. So I took off. Now my brother in the last 20 years has got an army and there's no, he's so happy to see you. He's thrilled to meet you. He says, yeah, we gave him the gifts. We said the thing that you told us to say, and he just blew right by us. There are 400 dudes are on horses. They're coming this way real fast. Can you feel this? <laughs> I love it. Verse, uh, what does it say? What does it say Jacob did? Verse seven. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. You have an army headed your way. Great fear and distress is an appropriate response to that. Right? Listen. I want you to feel where Jacob's at. This is what I mean. I think some people in this room that you have been wrestling with God and you don't even know it. Jacob's looking at his life and everything that could go wrong is going wrong. God says, go back to that really tough situation. Okay, I'll head. But I really hope that, you know, you're going before me and you're going to make everything really smooth. And, and my brother's going to like, he's repented of his sins. And now my brother really loves me and really realizes how great of a younger brother that I actually was and all these things. Instead, he steps into this really tough situation. Now brother's got an army and he's headed his way. Everything that could go wrong is going wrong. Jacob's Worst fears are being realized. Can you feel the fear? What do you do? Can I ask you? What do you do when you get afraid? Men, don't act like you don't. What do you do when you get afraid? Moms, what do you do? You shop? Oh, no, 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 I know what you do. You do what all good moms do. You do what, for some reason, that... Mothers think it's their job to do. You worry. Right? You worry and you take in all the situation. You get all the details and you bring it into your mind and you wrestle with it in your mind. And somehow you believe by taking in all this stress and all this fear and all this anxiety that somehow this will be conducive and you'll pop out the right answer. 
And all the loose ends that are out there can be wrapped up nice and tidy. Or do you get on Facebook and just get busy? Do you just get busy? Do you just go to work and forget about it? What do you do when fear grips you? Do you scheme? See, that's what, ha- that's what used to happen with Jacob. That's what Jacob, how he used to respond. Okay, how can I get myself out of this? His brother, who rightly hates him, has got an army on the way. Jacob's whole family is sitting in harm's way. Things are about to go badly. Jacob's worked for 60 years to accumulate the wealth, to get the family he's got, and now his brother's swooping in with an army and could wipe them all out in one moment. And this, when things are at the darkest, when things are at their worst, when everything that could go wrong has gone wrong, this is where we see that God has been at work in Jacob's heart. This time is different. This time God has got him. Jacob is backed into a corner. He's reached rock bottom after 60 years of scheming and trying to take care of things on his own with his own ability and his own intellect. Jacob finally succumbs to God and he reaches out in prayer. Look at verse 9. And Jacob said, Oh God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, Oh Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my path I crossed this Jordan. And now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother and from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me. The mothers with the children, but you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Now listen, we cannot overemphasize the importance of these verses. Why does God lead us into difficult circumstances? To bring us to the end of ourself. This is, right here, this is the first recorded prayer of of Jacob. His whole life, he schemed and planned and figured things out up here. This is the first moment in his entire life that he gets to his knees and says, I can't do it anymore. I'm tired, I'm exhausted, all the wrestling of my life, all the scheming of my life. I don't want to do it anymore. I'm done. God, I'm worthless. Help me. And this is the longest, it's funny, this is the longest recorded prayer in the book of Genesis. Why does God lead us into difficult circumstances? Why does God look to the tornado tornado and say, yeah, head that direction? Why does he do it? Why are you in relational turmoil right now? Why are you struggling to get out of the sin that you're in right now? Why do you have the difficulty in your life that you have right now? Why? Why? To bring us to the end of ourself. To lead us to a place where the presence of fear is so real, it forces us to our knees. All true prayer begins right here with an utter sense of helplessness. Listen to this quote by A.W. Tozer. The reason why many are still troubled 
still seeking, still making little forward progress is because they haven't yet come to the end of themselves. We're still trying to give orders and interfering with God's work within us. Is that what your prayer life looks like? You coming to God and giving him orders, telling him what he needs to do to make your life happy? Or have you reached the end of yourself? Have you reached the point where you're like, I know, I've... You know what, what shocks me is the young people of today, how their life is an absolute train wreck. Relationships are broken everywhere. They're addicted to pornography. They're addicted to alcohol and drugs. And yet they still stand like little proud fools and look at everybody else and point out what's wrong with them. They can de- deconstruct everybody else's issues and they don't even know how to fix, they don't even know how to change themselves. They haven't came to the end of themselves yet. And most of us know, most of us have gotten out on our own and we realize that all the hatred we had towards mom and dad, we need to eat those words. Okay, mom and dad knew a little, they knew a thing or two, right? Sorry, mom or dad. But we have these young people who are convinced that they're the next American idol. They're convinced that they're just walking around to be discovered and that they're above working in a factory. They're above hard labor. They haven't come to the end of themselves yet. And Jacob, in this moment, God is so brilliantly got him backed into a corner where all roads are leading to this one encounter. And God's saying, I love you so much, I'm going to get you. I love you so much, I'm coming after you. I'm going to back you into a corner where the only way out is me. And this is where a true encounter with God begins. Jacob has come to the end of himself. He sees himself as totally bankrupt. He's without power to save himself from the trouble that lies ahead of him. So he throws himself completely on the mercy of God. And he prays. He says, God, I deserve nothing, but you're with me. And I ask that you would deliver me from the hand of my brother. From the words of a great man, Uncle Si on Duck Dynasty, courage is fear that has said its prayer. Courage is fear that has said its prayer. He's in a very difficult situation. He could man up and he could be a man and he could tackle it or he could go to his knees and beg Jesus. And he goes to his knees and he he begs God to deliver him. And this is where his life begins to change. Okay, so here we go. Jacob's overwhelmed with fear. He takes it to God in prayer. That's what we do when we're afraid. That's what we do when we have anxiety. We take it to God in prayer. Then he gets up from there and he takes action. He says this. All right, this is what we're going to do. Esau's on his way. 400 men. They're going to kill us. Okay? But this is what I want to do. Maybe we can change his mind. He breaks his people up into three different groups. He gives them all presents. (laughs) Right? He knows how to make an older brother happy. Right? Presents. Okay. He goes, send a, when you meet Esau, go ahead of me. When you meet Esau, give him these gifts. Tell him I'm waiting for him. Three different times. Hey, Esau sends all of his love, or Jacob sends all of his love and all of these presents. Don't you want all these animals? And he's waiting for you. Second group, hey, same thing. Three times he does it. Then in the middle of the night, he gets up, he takes his family, he walks across the river, he hides his family in the woods. He wants to protect them. And he goes back over. 
And look at verse 24. This is when things get real. And Jacob was left alone. I want, you to, I want to set the stage here. Hundreds of his household. They've all went forward. They're all gone. They've all already met Esau. His family is hiding in the woods across from the river. And Jacob is alone in the middle of the night. Can you see this? This is just, I like this. He's got a, I'm just going to make this work. He's got a small fire. Right? Small fires crackling. You can see the stars. He's in the middle of nowhere. He's by himself. You ever been camping by yourself? It's awesome and creepy at the same time. But look, this is what happens. Can you just see him? He's sitting by the fire. He's praying, God, all of the, all of the crap of my life, all of my past, it's all coming to meet me. Am I going to have to kill my brother? Am I going to have to fight with Esau? What am I going to do? I've schemed and I've screwed people over. I've done all this stuff for so long. God, help me. And then all of a sudden, he hears a a twig snap. He looks up and a man enters the firelight. Oh my gosh. This man enters the firelight. Takes off his robe. Doesn't say a word. He's just, he's in the firelight, but just, you can't see his face. He's Jack though. (laughs) The firelight, you know, gives the abs the perfect, the perfect shading, right? And Jacob, listen, Jacob has been wrestling his whole life. Jacob's been scheming and deceiving his whole life. So Jacob's like, okay, it's on. It's on like Donkey Kong. He gets up. He gets up, they circle the fire. All of a sudden, boom, they latch up. They tie up and they, and they start going at it. And they're wrestling. And if you remember from the story with the well, they had the really big rock on it. Jacob lifted over and lifts that thing off. And all the men had to do it together. He's a strong guy. And now he's in there and he's wrestling with this man. And Jacob can't get one up on him. Jacob can't take his back. Jacob can't beat him. But I'm just going to give you, I'm just going to just let you know what's happened. We already read the scripture. This is called Christophany. A Christophany. What is a Christophany? It's it's an appearance. Most people think it's an appearance of the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. It's God leaving heaven before he came to earth in Jesus. And and we know that because in a minute he says, I've seen the face of God. Okay, and it's called the angel of God. Many commentators believe this is Jesus. Jacob doesn't know that right now, but Jacob knows, oh, this guy's good. And it's going on all night long. And then what, what's, this is, it kind of reminds me, like Jesus is wrestling with Jacob. It kind of reminds me, like I was a wrestling coach. And when you wrestle with like the freshmen and you're kind of like, you let them do stuff and you're like, okay, he's going to get me. And then when you turn it on, and then if he almost gets you, you just turn it on and you, like just to let him know who's the boss, right? It's kind of like that. Jesus is wrestling with them and he goes, oh man, I, I, he sees, it says he sees that he, he's not winning. Okay, so it's just going back and forth. And this is what Jesus does. He reaches out and the Bible says he touches his hip. 
This is so strange. Right? He doesn't, right? He just goes, oh, you're so strong. Beep. Right? And Jacob, boom, his hip comes out of the socket. It pops his hip. So I'm there to Jacob thinking, I'm going to wear this guy down. I've almost got him. I can tell. He ain't never wrestled with nobody like me. Oh. He's been, and immediately, immediately, who is this guy? This ain't a man. This is, nobody can, you know, except for Spock, right? Beep, or Bruce Lee or something, right? One little touch and he's out of the socket. And any wrestler will tell you that your hips, they're the source of all your strength. It's where you generate all your power from. That Jesus touches Jacob, but it's not a comforting hand. Listen to me. This is Jesus. Yeah, sweet little long flowing locks, Jesus, right? He doesn't pet him. Jacob, you've had a rough life. Daddy never loved you. Let's just lay down on this couch and let me talk to you for an hour and a half. Jesus touches him, but not with a comforting hand. It's a painful touch. Jesus makes him utterly helpless. He saps him of his own strength. And now all Jacob can do is hold on. He's got a dislocated hip. The match is over. But what Jacob does is Jacob realizes... Everybody I've been wrestling with in my whole life, I've really been wrestling with this guy. This is God. So what Jacob does is he flips and he just grabs on, he just locks on and he says, I will not let you go until you bless me. Jacob realizes he's wrestling with God and through his excruciating pain, he cries out. This, guys and gals, is the blessing that he's been scheming for his whole life. Young men, this is why you feel alone. This is why you feel broken. Old men, this is why you want to get the convertible. This is why you want to go through the midlife crisis. This is why all the things that you want, you're scheming for, all the blessing you're trying to get, is not found out there. It's found in a wrestling match with God. He realizes that all the wrestling of my life has led me to this moment, and it's because I've been wrestling against God. Some of you, you're wrestling with God this morning. Can I trust him? Is he good? Is he real? It's good. Wrestle with those things. God is a God who will wrestle with you. Now listen, religion does not like this. Give me a rule. Give me a list. Tell me how to be a better person. And God's like, nah, I'll send Jesus down to whoop yo. Right? That's what happens. I'll put hands on you. This is a God. We don't think of a God like this. God will come down and get dirty. Wrestle all night long. And Jesus' response is absolutely fascinating. They're wrestling. Pops his hip out. Boom. 
Jacob latches on. Oh, I'm in way over my head. I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. What does Jesus say? What's your name? Cut to the heart. Jacob's name means deceiver. Jacob's name means literally schemer. He's wrestling with him. He pops his hip out. He's grabbing on in sheer weakness. He's holding on in sheer weakness. And Jesus goes, who are you? And Jacob answers, I'm the deceiver. People, this is what an encounter with God does. You have to come to the realization that you are your worst fears. You are a fool. We are broken. You are an alcoholic. You are controlling. You are whatever it is. Jesus doesn't, he doesn't mince any words. Who are you? Jacob has to confront his past. He has to say, I'm Jacob. I'm the deceiver. And I can imagine Jacob's strength just leaves him. This guy knows my past now. This guy knows that I'm not perfect. This guy knows all about the wickedness of my past. And right here, when Jacob is at his weakest, he's got a dislocated hip, and he's confessed all of his brokenness of his past. It's really weak. That's a really weak moment when you confess to your missional community or you confess to your fight club or you confess to someone your sins of your past and how they've, how they've kind of labeled you. It's a really intimate moment. And right here, when he says, I'm the deceiver, we expect, at least me, I expect a blood sport elbow that finishes the match. You're a deceiver? You know, pull his throat out or something, right? That's what, I'm, that's what I grew up on, right? Bloodsport, amazing movie, great acting, Jean-Claude, right? Don't you expect that? Hips popped out, you've been defeated, now it comes to finish him, right? That's what we expect in this moment. But Jesus doesn't do that. At Jacob's weakest moment, Jesus does this. He changes him. You are no longer Jacob the deceiver. Now you're Israel. Israel literally means God fights. But right here he says, the reason we're naming you Israel is because you have fought with man and God and won. Whoa, 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 whoa. He's won? He's got a dislocated hip. He's laying there holding on. It does not look like he's won. Listen, if you like your life, if you like your life right now the way it is, if you want to stay, if you, if you want to stay the same, you better stay far away from Jesus. He will mess you up. You can fill your life with religion and you can keep it neat and tidy. But if you meet Jesus, everything's going to change. And if it hasn't, you should say, have I met Jesus? Have I really met Jesus? I want you to look at verse 30 and 31. He gets his identity changed in the moment. Now you're Israel. You're no longer that man. You're no longer that deceiver that you once were. Now you're someone different. And look at verse 30. 
so Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. He's overwhelmed that he got to wrestle with God and he didn't get killed. And the sun rose upon him as he passed. Peniel, look at this. Limping because of his hip. Jacob had an encounter with Jesus and never walked the same way again. Jesus wounded him. Jesus crippled his body to save his soul and to change his identity. And this is God's goodness and God's grace to him. God's grace has literally put a limp in his Gideon from now on. You're a new man and you won't walk the same way ever again. You'll be reminded of your weakness from this moment on. You'll be reminded that you met with Jesus and I dropped your hip and I changed your name. Are, can I ask the church, are we prepared for this? See, I get it. We're Americans. We want a nice, needy, nice, needy, nice and neat and tidy little religion. Show up on Sunday and help me have a good wife and a good husband and help me raise my kids. But just stay in that box. You don't want a God. You want to be God. How are you putting, how are you putting God in a box? Are we prepared to have God wound us? Hebrews 12, 6 says that God disciplines the ones that he loves like sons. Hebrews also tells us that Jesus was made perfect through his sufferings. Why are we, if, if God made Jesus perfect in his humanity through sufferings, why are we shocked when we go through sufferings? Why are we shocked when God wounds us, when God places us in difficult situations where we're brought to the end of ourselves? Some of you might be thinking, I don't want a God like that. I don't want a God who wounds me. I want a God who loves me. But don't you see? This is love. This is a wound of grace. It's a wound of love. It's like the wound from a surgeon's scalpel as it removes a cancer from your body. Jacob had tried everything. He had won every competition in life, but he's still not happy. He still thinks God chooses the winners. He's still a stranger to grace. This moment, this morning, if you've tried everything in your life, you've tried more money, you've tried more success, you've tried more women, you've divorced your wife and tried to find a new one and realize this woman not perfect either. You've tried, and I'm not, I don't mean to be condescending, but you always, you, you just, the answer's always out there. It's the next raise or it's the next deal or it's the next girl or it's the next guy or it's the next whatever. Could, could I be a voice of reason this morning and say, maybe... Maybe the problem is you. And maybe you have no idea how to fix it. That's what Jacob's at. Jacob's wrestled his whole life. 
But do you know what the only thing Jacob hasn't tried? And the only thing that Jacob would never think to try? And the only thing that you would never think to try? The answer is weakness. This never even crosses our mind, does it? That's why the gospel is so counterintuitive. God chooses those who are weak. God gives grace to those who come to him in weakness. Jesus knew that Jacob would never even think of that, so Jesus does it for him and he zaps him of his strength so that he can find rest in his weakness. Jacob needed to lose in order to win. Jacob needed to find what Paul found. When Paul said, I went to God, I had this struggle, this thorn in my flesh, this thing I can't get over. And Jesus said to me, my grace is made perfect. Right? My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. On Jacob wins through losing. So I want, you, I want to make this really practical for you this morning. As I close right now, I want to give you, I want to give you big, three big things on three markers of the anatomy of an encounter with God. Okay? Um, I believe, this is why. I believe this church, I believe all churches across America, I believe they're filled with people who are religious and they know a little bit about the Bible and a little bit about Jesus, but they've never been converted. Their lives don't look like the life of Jesus. Their hearts haven't been changed. They haven't been made new. And I want you, if that's you in this room and you've never had an encounter with God, I want you to have an encounter with God. I want you to meet God on your own terms and on his terms. I want you to do that. So here's three things that we see from this text. Number one, an encounter with God is personal. Jacob sends everybody away and it's one-on-one. Listen, if your only times with God happen on a Sunday morning or happen on a Wednesday night in groups, you should evaluate yourself. You should evaluate your life, what life with God. God doesn't encounter. He encounters individuals. Get alone with God, one-on-one, where you're... That's when your fears really get stirred up. That's when your anxiety to want to be on Facebook all the time really gets stirred up. That Jesus encourages us to seek him in silence and in solitude. So I would encourage you, seek God one-on-one. Seek God on his own. Number two, number one, it's one-on-one. Encounters with God happen individually. Number two, it's a fight. It's a wrestling match. Many of us would like God to sit down for tea, have this nice little, little civilized chat. Let me tell you why. I really get frustrated with you sometimes, God. I'm so glad that God's like, (laughs) right? And just let me show you why I'm God. This is a couple things that I learned from this. I was a wrestler, wrestled my whole life. And this is what, you know, God God is very specific when he shows up to Jacob and he wrestles him. They don't play croquet or invent golf or something, right? They wrestle. Why? If you've ever wrestled, you know, while you're wrestling, there's nothing else you're thinking about. Wrestling is so intense that if you're thinking about anything else, you're going to get tossed on your head. Okay? Wrestling demands tunnel vision. 
Nobody is wrestling in the third period. They're like, mm, what am I going to do this weekend? Right? Wrestling demands all your focus. It demands full attention in the moment. And listen, this is what it shows us. Jesus cannot be in the periphery of your life. He can't be on the outskirts, someone you just kind of go to when, when things are going bad. If you're wrestling with God, it demands your focus. It demands your attention. If you've met Jesus, Jesus is the filter for everything else in life. Okay, here's the second point about wrestling. Wrestling is where two, two wills come together. My wrestling coach used to always tell me, you have, to have a, you have to break his will. That's what you have to do. You have to break his will. And in wrestling, I'm going to ask you this. Do you find in your relationship with Jesus, do you find Jesus consistently challenging you? Do you find Jesus consistently crossing your will and going, no, 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 no. You can't do that. No, 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 no. This is what I want you to do. No, no, no. I want you to bless your enemies. I want you to pray for them. Do you find Jesus... Is Jesus only petting you and telling you, you know what, those guys, they hurt you so bad. Oh my goodness, I can't believe how bad they hurt you. They're so bad. Is that what Jesus does to you? If he does, then that probably is not Jesus. That's probably your little self-esteem mantra that you learned in kindergarten. Jesus, it's a wrestling match. When two wrestlers lock up, they're crossing each other. It's pressure. It's pushing. Jesus should be pushing on you. He should be saying that money that you've got saved up for vacation, maybe you should give it to that underprivileged family. He should be saying that whatever, I I don't even know. I'm not even going to make it that practical for you. You know, Jesus, the Jesus of the scriptures, presses us, challenges us, confronts our own will. And then third thing. Number one, it's personal. It's one-on-one. It's how you encounter Jesus. Number two, it's a wrestling match. It's not easy and sweet and fun all the time. But this is where the peace comes. Number three, you have to lose in order to win. Tozer again says this. It's doubtful whether God can use a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. Many of you might be shocked by this. But do you know what should shock us? If we had appropriate, God-centered view of the world, do you know what should shock us? Why was Jacob wounded by grace and not killed by God's justice? What is this God that comes down to wrestle with fools? What is this God that would condescend and come to earth to wrestle with foolish people like us. We've got these, I don't know, God, I've got doubts about you. What is it? This is not the God of Greek mythology that just shoots lightnings from heaven, right? That's what God should do. Oh, Jacob, you want to wrestle? Okay. How about this? Tornado. How about this? Earth opens up, swallows you. Ah, there we go. Have fun with that. What is this? What is this God? Why does Jacob get wounded by grace and not killed by God's justice? And this is why. Because Jesus himself 
would take the blows of God's justice on the cross. Jesus would take the full weight of the wrath of God in Jacob's place for Jacob's sins on the cross. Jesus took God's death blow so that Jacob could take the wound of grace. The wound that would change his life forever. And I love how this story ends. The story ends as the sun comes up, a new day dawns, and Jacob is now Israel. He's a new man, but he walks with a limp. How do you know you've had an encounter with God? You walk with a limp. There's a humble confidence. I met God face to face and he didn't kill me. But I'm not the same man I used to be. Men, this is how we lead our families. This is how... We, de- we kill sin in our life. This is how we do hard things because we've been wounded by grace. We're reminded that Jesus was killed in our place for our sins and we've only been wounded. He was crushed and killed so that we could just be wounded. And that gives us this humble confidence as we walk forward in life. And I, th- I would say, Only the gospel can do this. You can be strong in this world. You can be an expert wrestler. You can be rich. You can be all these things. And you can't be humble. You can walk with a swagger in this life, but you're not humble. And you can be poor and you can be meek and you can be lowly, but you're not confident. Only in the gospel can we be both humble and confident. Only because what Jesus Christ has done for us. So I believe today, you're here, I believe your, your roads have crossed into this moment today. I believe whoever you've been in your past, whatever your identity was, whether it's the worrier, whether it was the wrestler, whether it was the achiever, whatever that identity was, when you say, who are you, and you speak that name, that sinful past that you used to have, it can end today. If you take the wound of grace, if you take the humbling, and you say, God, I am worse than I ever thought possible. But in Christ, I'm more loved than I've ever hoped for. That's the gospel. That can change us day in and day out. I'm going to pray. Father, I thank you for this word. I thank you for your scripture. I thank you for this story. I thank you for Jacob. I thank you that you are a God who still wrestles. And I pray that you're, through your spirit, you are wrestling with people right now. Telling them to win through losing. Father, those of us who are, maybe we're sitting on the sidelines and maybe we've watched our wife have an encounter with God, but we've never encountered you on our own. I pray that you would bring us to the end of ourselves, That you would invite us into a one-on-one encounter with you. And that you would change us from the inside out. Father, as we come this morning... We've placed our faith in you. We've repented of our sins. As we come this morning to the table, may we take the Lord's Supper. May we be reminded 
that you took the death blow for us through your body and through your blood we can be made right with Jesus Christ we can be made right with God through Jesus Christ I pray that you would convict us of that I pray that you would fill us with the joy that overflows from that I pray that you would change identities this morning in Jesus name Amen